I'm a writer, director, and obsessive colorist, as in coloring books. I understood what you meant. Okay. <laughs> Hi, I'm Gabby Dunn. I'm a writer, bicon, bisexual icon, wink, uh, and not doing well indoors. <laughs> That's because you're not coloring enough. I actually have been coloring a shocking amount. Really? What have you got? A coloring book? No, I'm just drawing. I'm just drawing. Some girls asked me to draw them flash tattoos. Oh, so my God. I've been drawing like weird little creatures and stuff. And these girls might get it tattooed. When? In like seven months when we're allowed out? Exactly. Again? Exactly. Yeah. Uh, when tattoo shops reopen, that essential business. You just have like two 14 year old girls giving themselves stick tattoos. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I love a good stick and poke, although they are not sanitary. But mm. I have had people offer do it in front of me it's like very queer to do stick and pokes weirdly is it extra painful uh well yeah because it's like individual it's like oh, each God. it's like i had a friend who did it herself in high school like did like a a star or something like by herself like with I, like pen ink i feel sad for her yeah it's not good i imagine like cause it doesn't feel do- like a good sign <laughs> You think the people I was hanging out with in high school were like cheery and on the up and up? Like that's your impression of who I was hanging out with in high school? No, I imagine you alone in your room. It was a lot of that. Yeah, it was a lot of that. A lot of computer stuff. Oh, yeah. I realize I just never really got into like AIM or or LiveJournal or MySpace. So maybe I'm the true antisocial one. You were never doing stuff on the computer when you were in high school? No. Like, occasionally I'd, like, aim chat with somebody. (laughs) This is Just Between Us, a variety show filled with heartfelt advice, ridiculous games, and brutal honesty. And you've just been coloring in a coloring book, but, like, you're, maybe you're, like, the real world artist. But my issue is that because I'm using someone else's drawings and coloring them in, if I start to sell these for thousands of dollars, do I have to give that person some of the money? No. What you're doing, you're not just coloring in the lines. I've seen your pictures. They are, like, they are definitely, like, from a beautiful mind. Uh, they're not just, uh, you're not just coloring it in. You're like doing weird stuff on it. I don't know how to explain it. You're like, you're like doing I'm creating extra my things. own patterns. Yeah, you're doing extra things on it. Guys, I know, but I still feel like I, what I need to do is I need to learn how to draw the, the design and then fill it in so that it's all mine. Yeah. But well, I don't see that happening anytime soon. You got. You should post some to Instagram so our listeners can see what you've been doing because it is kind of like what someone who's been in solitary confinement for years would draw. Wow. It's it's like, I feel like it's like... My parents very, say that they're beautiful. They are beautiful, but they are kind of intense. Well, yeah, they're meant to make you feel something. And that's what art's purpose is. I know. <laughs> <laughs> We've got a great episode for you guys this week. <laughs> this week, we're asking Emily Grassley, host of the science show The Brain Scoop, some tough questions. And later, we'll be discussing childhood moments that shaped us. I like oh, that. Boy. It's, yeah, it's not framed positively or negatively, it's real neutral. I have some, <laughs> I've got some doozies. Not really. I'm going to have to rack my brain because I blocked my entire really? childhood. Really? I know a few of yours. But first, hit it! International question! International question! International question! Gabby, Melbourne, Australia. Gabby with two Bs, but we'll accept it. We'll accept it on in, during this trying time. Yeah, uh, there's like an app now called Gabby that's, they're doing ads and it's really throwing me. What do they do? I don't want to do an ad for them. Gabby, why don't you sponsor us and then I'll say what you do. Every, <laughs> every single blood vessel in your body is capitalism (laughs) pay me or else (laughs) okay so gabby from melbourne australia says how do you ask your partner about marriage she adds i feel i'm ready to get married but i'm nervous to bring it up with my partner we were friends for five years before getting together and in that time i was in a long-term relationship and he was married and divorced both pretty unhealthy relationships for different reasons it's now been almost two years since we got together living together for eight months and we both openly talk about our emotions to each other 
but I still feel it's so hard to talk about wanting to get married. I consider myself a modern and independent woman and I have everything I could ever want in a partner with him, but I still want to get married. Not to have a big, crazy wedding, just to celebrate our lives and loves for each other with the people we love most. How do I approach this conversation without sounding like I'm asking him to propose or putting too much pressure on him? It seems hard to ask about his thoughts and feelings around marriage, knowing what he went through in the divorce. It was hard enough to ask to move in together. Anxiety through the roof. Okay, so three things stick out to me. Oh, three. It's a lot. Yes. One, it was hard to ask to move in together, but he said, yes, you moved Mm -hmm. in together. So that was successful. Two, I totally understand that it's hard to bring it up to someone specifically who is divorced. That is tough because you know that they might have a trigger point when it comes specifically to marriage, having gone through a terrible divorce. Three, there's nothing inherently not modern or independent about wanting to get married. It's not a dig on you. It's not like something frivolous or silly, especially because I don't think people consider that marriage, it's beneficial in terms of being able to visit each other in the hospital, uh, certain legal protections, um, certain things that like solidify the relationship and make things a lot easier. You know, buying a house together or or certain monetary things are easier when you're married. There's there's a lot of reasons to get married that aren't just like, I'm a silly girl or whatever. <laughs> so put that out of your mind. It's a contract. It's asking someone to sign a contract. I find it interesting when people are able to be in these long-term relationships and, and not have talked about such significant stuff. You know, like, think about it. If you were talking to a friend and your friend was like, yeah, I've been dating my boyfriend for two years. We've been friends for seven years. We live together. We're so happy. I'm afraid to ask about marriage. You would be like, what? (laughs) You know, like, I understand the anxiety, but also like just the idea of you bringing that up in no way, shape or form is you like overstepping. That is true. And also, I think you can bring it up in a way that isn't like, you must do this or whatever. I think Mm -hmm. there's a lot of societal and like, truthfully, in movies, pressure on women to never bring it up, specifically women, never bring it up because you're a shrew and you're pressuring him and all this kind of stuff. But it's actually like a fairly typical and normal conversation to have as long as you are like, hey... This is what I'm feeling. And you don't say, this is what you should do. You just go, mm-hmm. hey, like, I'd love to get married at some point. Um, You know, I've been thinking about it and I love you. And I want our lives together to be really easy and uncomplicated. And I I, I want to celebrate our love with my, with our friends. And I want I want you to be my husband. I want I love you so much. I want you to be my person in an official way. And I think like that's reasonable. I also think you do have to take into account especially for this guy, hey, I understand that like the first go around wasn't great. And that could lead to him sort of thinking he doesn't trust himself when it comes to these decisions. You know, he made a huge mistake once. Could he make that mistake again? Like, I definitely get the trepidation on his end, but you can't assume that about him. You have to ask. Don't put anything on him. Just be like, hey, this is how I'm feeling. And then let him react. And then right. and then actually listen and take in his reaction without defensiveness, without taking it personally, without because like he's in he's his own person who has his own thoughts and feelings about this. And they're just as valid as yours. And so I think you both really talk it out and like understand where he's coming from. And he has to understand where you're coming from hugely. And you shouldn't be embarrassed about wanting this. Like, no, you shouldn't very- be. This is this is how you should bring up anything with him. Like, I don't think this in particular should, you know, given this like huge importance, although I understand why it is. And I think that um, maybe the wrong way to do it is to say, like, what do you think of our future? Like, like, do you think about our future? What do you envision for our future? I think Gabby's right where you start off with what you think and what you feel, you know, so yes. you're not just like putting him on the spot. And don't um, be vague and don't and don't be like, because that sounds like you're a sort of like a trick, because if he doesn't mm-hmm. say what you want, you're going to be devastated. So and he can't read your mind. He can't know what you want. So he might be like, uh, well, if I say that I want to get married, is she going to freak out if I say that I don't want to get married? Is she going to freak out? This is the thing that my therapist told me. You have to sit down, say what you want, say what you've been thinking, and then Don't put anything on him. Don't apologize. Don't say, I know that you might feel or I know you might say, 
don't don't add that. Just say what you want. Say what you're thinking and then sit and shut your mouth and listen. (laughs) And I think that you have to like remove whatever societal shame you're feeling about wanting this thing. Totally. You know, like we've said, it's a totally normal thing to want. I mean, I think that you can't even like start to predict like, okay, so let's say he doesn't want to get married. You know, then you like cross that bridge when you come to it. But like the first step is just you putting your cards on the table and saying like, hey, I've been thinking about our future and I've been thinking about what I want my life to look like. Mm-hmm. And I think it makes the most sense and I would want us to, to be married. It's a lot more about like what the, what your life looks like versus like, oh, I just want like a huge wedding and I want this one special day. It's more just mm-hmm. like what Gabby was talking about, like having those having those legal rights to each other and being able to be out and be like, this is my husband versus like, this is my boyfriend, you know, like, Uh, It's a normal want. And I also think that the longer that you don't talk about it, the bigger a thing it's going to become to you. Mm -hmm. Like it's just going to get scarier and scarier to bring it up. Yeah, he might not know that you're interested in getting married. You know, you've never brought it up. I mean, I understand. I think he might say he has trepidation because of a divorce or plenty of divorced people are like, yeah, that person wasn't right for me, but I'm open to marriage with with the right person. And also if he says... He spooked on marriage because of the divorce. Really hear him out. Really hear him out. Like, how much did this hurt him? Talk about like, yes, I understand that this super hurt you. I I wonder if it was this person or if it was, ma- you know, marriage in general. I don't think it is. I think it's, I don't know, you know, like, I think you really have to communicate with each other and not be judgmental and not be defensive and like really hear him out. But also his initial reaction is not necessarily going to be his final reaction. So like, Talk through he might. It. He might, and I'm not even saying talk through it in one day. Like he might Mm -hmm. need like a little bit of time to process it if it's something that's not been on his radar at all. But what I don't want you to do is for you to say like, hey, I I think I would love to get married and him say, I don't want to get married. And you go, okay, you know, yes, totally. You're allowed to still want that and you're allowed to sort of like fight for it and to sort of like make your argument. And if his initial reaction is like, no, 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 no. Then you could be like, you know what? Like just just think about it. Like we haven't discussed this before. I'm putting, you know, this is like a big change, but just like, give me like the respect of like you actually thinking about what it would be like to be married to me specifically. Also like, you know, you're both coming from these unhealthy sort of hurtful relationships. I, you know, I think you understand each other. Let that come through and happen in this conversation too. And know that it might be an ongoing conversation that might Mm -hmm. span a a few weeks or months. And if this is something you really want and he's not willing to give it to you, you have to reassess. You know, like you don't have to give up on your of your dream or your desire to be married if this person doesn't want to marry you. That's true. And that's scary. And it's Mm -hmm. like, you know, could potentially be a big change. But sometimes you have to think about how much you're willing to compromise for someone. And even if you're willing to compromise for someone, will you then be happy? Or will it be 10 years from now and you're you're really mad? (laughs) Well, yeah, I think also, you know, do you want kids? A lot of times, like, custody stuff is more important if you're married. People, you know, in my experience, people don't want to think about marriage as a logistical thing. Like, that's come up in my relationships a lot where I'll be like, you know, the person will will want it to be very romantic or uh, of a thing, or they'll want it to be, they don't want it at all. And I'm sort of like of the mind that it's like just a practical, like when it comes to our kids or rights or, uh, you know, like uh, picking them up from school and having the same Mm -hmm. last name, whatever it is. Like uh, there's like a lot of reasons to be married that are just sort of practical and logical. And I think like sometimes people are put off by that argument (laughs) from me. I mean, it's just it's like a contract. It's like saying that you want to be in business with this person and the business is love. (laughs) That was beautiful. Um, If you want to submit your international question, send it to justbetweenuspod at gmail.com. That's justbetweenuspod at gmail.com. Good luck, Gabby. I I hope that when you bring it up, he proposes on the spot. Oh, my God. Stick around after the break. We have a riveting interview with Emily Grassley. Just between us. Hey. Just between us. 
welcome back to Just Between Us. It's time for the juiciest, most scandalous, controversial segment known to all of podcasting. Tough questions. This week on the show, we have Brain Scoop's Emily Grassley. Can you tell the audience a little bit about who you are and what Brain Scoop is? Yeah, so I have a pretty fun job. My job title at the Field Museum of Natural History in Chicago is Chief Curiosity Correspondent. And it's my job to go around the museum and interview scientists and make videos about all the amazing things that we have in our research collection and then share that with the world. I've been making educational YouTube videos since 2013 and am now also finishing up a PBS mini series that's going to be out this summer called Prehistoric Road Trip. Have you always been interested in science or is it something you sort of fell into? I think I'm a, I'm a little bit of an accidental scientist. I studied art in college and was really into landscape painting and sort of fell into museums by accident, literally by stumbling into one and looking around and being like, this is pretty neat. How can I spend more time here? And so I just kept showing up and wouldn't leave and eventually like started a blog and then a YouTube show. And then uh, it transformed into this awesome job that I have today. Do you have any formal science training just for our listeners who maybe like are like, no, it's too late for me to get into science? No, I don't. I mean, I, I took like the one geology 101 like rocks for jocks course in college that was a requirement for graduation but I don't actually have any like formal background in science I guess at this point like I've been working in museums for close to 10 years so I guess that counts as is quite a bit of experience but um, I've always been a proponent of the fact that anybody can have an interest in the natural world and you don't need to have like a fancy degree or any kind of like formal training or background in order to just like appreciate the planet and all it has to offer what is the like mindset been recently with the fact that science is now almost seen as mythical <laughs> to our current administration and <laughs> some people throughout the world? Uh, it's it can be really aggravating if you're on the um, if you're on the side of like of opinion that we should be listening to the scientists and the scientific experts. Um, but honestly, it's also been like an interesting challenge for science communicators like me to really do some soul searching and figure out like, where did we go wrong? Like, what what are we doing that is alienating so many people or making or helping other people like not not follow that same sort of route, you know, like where where can we meet others in the middle? So it's been an interesting, interesting challenge. I think the idea is like, well, clearly we're telling the truth and we're saying facts and like that should be enough. It's just the idea of a fact has gotten so distorted. Right. And that's kind of new for people who are like who just assume that we have the facts and like the facts say this and there's no other interpretation. Well, that, there's two sides to that coin, right? Like we as like science enthusiasts and scientists ourselves and we have such a deep conviction that if we have the data and we've interpreted the data correctly, like there is no other way, you know, it could be reevaluated or a hypothesis retested by different scientists, but more or less, like we're all sort of on the same page with how the scientific method works. But the other side of that coin is like people whose faith is similarly as like a conviction for them. Um, and I'm just using faith as like a one example of this, but for people to say like, well, this is God's will, or this is this is what the, it says in the Bible, like that's the ultimate truth. And so you're sort of having to reapproach like, well, where are people coming from on this spectrum? Are they on either polar opposite sides or are they somewhere in the middle? And as science communicators, we really have to do a lot of work to try and meet them where they are. What does that look like? Well, it looks like a lot of conversations. Um, a lot of empathetic conversations. So I'm a little bit of context. I'm from Rapid City, South Dakota. I'm from, you know, a, a huge red state. And my family is a bunch of farmers and ranchers. And so I have a pretty keen understanding of where people are coming from uh, on the perspective of like science denial. And a lot of that is rooted in just assuming that science is still a field that's largely elitist and removed from like the central part of our country in particular, right? Like scientific discoveries uh, happen on either coast and they're done by fancy people in ivory towers and they don't really have any sort of real quote unquote understanding of what life looks like in the American Midwest or whatever. And so there's the thing I've learned about science communication is it's so much more about listening than it is about talking in order to really figure out where people are coming from. You learn how to bite your tongue a little bit and just listen. It's like that thing of um, saying, uh, you know, oh, well, yes, the world was created in seven days. Sure. But 
what does a day look like? Maybe a day was actually a millennium, like trying to marry the two. Yeah, right. And it's really what it comes down to is both parties need to be able to foster their own curiosity about the other perspective or about other sides in general. I, I find like the most beautiful connections can happen around science when you lead with that sort of like genuine interest in wanting to understand the other person. I think that's where science communicators and scientists get a little bit hung up when they're not willing to concede maybe their perspective and put aside some ego to try and understand where other people are coming from. What is the work of the Field Museum? So is there active research happening behind the scenes? Yeah. It, so the Field Museum is a cool place. If you go to a museum like the Field Museum, there it's a huge institution. You could spend all day walking around it and not see everything that's on display. And the, the little tidbit that we share is that out of everything that you can see when you go visit the public exhibits, that represents only 1% of the actual specimens that are on, that we have in the museum in general. So there are 99% more collections items that are behind the scenes. And we employ about 150 scientists who are working in all different aspects of the collections. So we have anthropology collections, botanical collections, geology, dinosaurs, mammals, birds, insects, like meteorites. You know, we sort of have collections that represent all different aspects of natural history. And that's what researchers at the museum are looking at. And researchers from all over the world come and visit our collection too. And so my job in all of this is to help make some of those collection spaces more accessible to the general public who won't get a chance to visit them. What are some of your favorite collections that you've got to see and work with? That's a great question. I don't, the first thing that came to mind is, do you guys know what a baculum is? No. No. So you're, maybe you'll appreciate this. Maybe I'm just being weird. There's a there's a bone that's located in many vertebrates, like, you know, animals with backbones. Dogs have them, raccoons, minks, like walruses, and they all have this bone called a baculum. And it's a bone that's actually a penis bone. So it's an actual physical bone that's located in the in the penis of many different vertebrate animals. And the Field Museum has like a special baculum collection that's just all the penis bones from all the different animals that are all sorted in one collection space. And uh, they consolidate it because it, it can be a really di useful diagnostic tool to tell one species apart from another one by studying its penis bone. And the small, you know, like the middle school boy in me just like giggles so much every time I think about it. Um, so there are jumps like that, you know, that who, who gets to know about the Field Museum's penis bone collection? I saw a picture of you actually holding one when uh, I was researching. <laughs> oh, there you go. <laughs> yeah. So, so curiosity correspondent. So is this kind of like a way to reach out to the public or like get, I mean, almost feels like, like a way to try to get younger people or kids interested in science, because I know like a lot of times it starts when you're very, very young. So to, for it to not feel inaccessible, are you working ever with like younger people? We, our audience on YouTube is like pretty strictly millennial almost. I think like 75% of our, 75% of our viewership is between 18 and 34, which is interesting because the thing that we're trying to promote is the sense of lifelong learning. Um, there are so many programs geared toward getting kids, especially these days, like interested in STEM, science, technology, engineering, and math. There's so many well-funded STEM programs all over the country. And I, I love that they exist. But my question has always been like, what about what happens once you're out of the public school system or once you're out of school in general? Like what opportunities do people have to, to have their innate curiosity about the world encouraged? And so our videos, I think, serve to encourage that among older viewers and, and sharing that with like the young people in their life too. So, I mean, there can be kids, you know, a parent watching with their children at home, but in general, it's just like, you know, there's no age limit to wanting to learn more about bugs, you know? And like, why do you think learning about something like that penis bone in different <laughs> animals is important? You know, like how, what would you say to someone who's having a hard time, like extrapolating, like the importance of that to like everyday life? Well, that collection in particular is more entertaining, in my opinion, than it is like <laughs> crucial to helping other people understand the world. But, you know, I could go on and on about like what we learn about the world and how it has changed over the last 150 years is largely thanks to museum collections, right? When we talk about things and you hear these words used in popular media like invasive species or like the impacts of climate change, well, 
what is, what is that based on, right? Like, how do you know if something is an invasive species if you didn't know what lived there before? And museums have these like great collections that serve as those sort of keys to the past where you can go back and see when an invasive species started encroaching on a different or new territory. Or you can see how like certain animals are impacted by climate change because you see them moving higher in elevation to avoid the warming temperatures at lower latitudes. So there are so many different explanations and reasons that museums can be important for understanding our world today. But in general, you can't really know how to help save something if you don't first know what it is. Like if you don't know to cherish the natural world, why would you care about mitigating climate change? Or why would you care about the impacts of climate change on a native species in your region if you didn't first know about it, right? So it's really just trying to foster that that engagement with nature and with the natural world that I think we can really start to lose in our tech-savvy world today, which is kind of ironic coming from me, somebody who works on the internet. <laughs> Yeah, well, now think about it. Like, I mean, I, museums are sort of closed right now because of a virus. And like the only way people can really experience, quote unquote, the museum now is like through your videos or through videos uh, of that kind of thing on on the Internet. So it is actually kind of uh, like a highlights how important your stuff is. Thank you. Yeah, it's been a an interesting like silver lining to this. I just wish that you know, it wasn't happening. Like I wish it didn't take a global pandemic <laughs> for my videos to like, you know, be a, a great example for why we invest in digital education online. Um, but, you know, this is the thing is I hope people who can access the, the great outdoors, and like I know it's really complicated because some people don't have that access right now, but I'm hoping like maybe this will give people an opportunity to slow down a little bit and like grab some binoculars and try to learn more about the migratory birds that are coming through their area right now. You know, nature. I don't know if you can speak to this at all, but like historically, science is pretty like close to the chest, right? People are like doing their own experiments and they're keeping their research to themselves because they want to publish. But now during the pandemic, scientists are sort of working together in this way they never have before. Have you have you noticed that? Have you seen that? Is that a strange phenomenon? I don't know that it's scientists um, coming together in ways they haven't been before. I think it's more that the public is noticing how collaborative science is in general, um, which is the nice thing to see, right? We're seeing epidemiologists that are collaborating with all these other people across the medical industry, and microbiologists who are sharing their coverage widely. And I think that's really great that that's in the uh, front of a lot of people's minds right now. But one thing that we try to dispel on our program, and that's related to this too, is that there's a huge misconception that science is something that happens in isolation and that's largely supported by a lone genius figure, right? We have people like Isaac Newton and Albert Einstein and all of these other people in our history books. And you look at them and it's like, wow, that person in particular, they were solely responsible for this great discovery. When the reality these days especially is is the opposite is true. You know, science is a collaborative effort that requires input from so many diverse people across the board. And there's so much more that we can accomplish and that we can accomplish more quickly, the more collaborative that science becomes. So I think it's a great thing that people are seeing how like this virus in particular is putting a highlight on some of those ways that scientists have been collaborating. But yeah, I mean, it still is that idea that like some old white guy with a huge afro and a white lab coat is muttering to himself in a laboratory and <laughs> figuring out the secrets of the universe. Like that's not really how it happens. <laughs> it's not? No. <laughs> is there like a gender gap still happening in science? You know, like what are the, what is like the breakdown of like men and women and that's what I was going to ask. Oh, yeah. Oh. Well, I don't have the data in front of me, but I can say that uh, it depends on the field of science that you're looking at. So geology, for instance, is still a hugely white science, and it's also largely male. Um, but if you look at another scientific program or different area of science, like nursing, for instance, you know, nursing is still largely female. So it just depends on mm -hmm. the field that you're looking at. In general, though, yeah, I mean, science has a lot of 
progress that still needs to be made in terms of gender equity and equality, but also racial um, equity and equality. And it's a conversation that you see or should be seeing largely. It doesn't matter if you study reptiles or mammals or rocks or viruses. These are conversations that are happening or should be happening across all fields of science about like ways in which we're making those fields more open and welcoming to people from all different kinds of marginalized backgrounds, not just women, but also women. Yeah, I think there's this idea that it is not for me or like you don't see a lot of role models. So you're kind of like, oh, well, this isn't a thing that people like me do. Right. Uh, And so you have to sort of combat that. And like if I'm like, okay, I want to be a scientist. What does that mean? You know, like, could you kind of like take us through like the education and then the the job search and like research? Like, what does it look like to become a scientist? That's that's a really great question because it can like there is no one path. Right. Like I would say that Mm -hmm. I consider myself a woman working in a scientific field, but I have a BFA in landscape painting. So like how I got (laughs) from A to B is a little bit of a stretch. But, you know, the traditional sort of quote unquote route, like the traditional route for someone to become a scientist is that they get an undergraduate degree and we'll say like they get, you know, your BS or your BA and you can go on to get a master's degree and further specialize. So say you want to be a wildlife biologist, you can get a bachelor's degree in wildlife biology. You can go and get a two or three year master's degree and specialize in like a research lab and, you know, get a master's in like evolutionary biology. And then you could go on to get your PhD and and further your education that way. But there are so many other ways that you can contribute to science without needing to have a degree in it, right? Or if you do have a degree, you don't have to get a PhD. Or if you have a PhD, you don't have to stay in academia. So that's one thing that we we try with our program to show all the different ways in which you can become involved in science. So the field of science needs scientists. We do need people who are doing research, but you also need people who are supporting that research. You need people who are you know, you could join like the legal field and still support a scientific field. Or you could be like me and like, I'm, I support science by communicating about science. So you don't have to be like actively participating in scientific research in order to have a role in the field of science. But to your point too earlier about like seeing role models, that's something that I can, I can do something about, you know, through my programs, through YouTube, through my PBS series, like we can, and we do actively work towards having a really diverse representation of people from all different backgrounds, all different genders and races, and having them represented in our, in our programming to show that there are so many different unique faces in science and, and really anybody can become involved. I think like (laughs) trying to disassemble the ivory tower is probably my biggest life goal. And it, and you, you get at that goal by like giving other people opportunities to share their stories. And so that's, that's one thing we try to do with Brain Scoop. In college, I went to school for journalism and I, I wanted to maybe be a science writer uh, or journalist or, or something. And I grappled with like, oh, does that mean I should have majored in science so I can write about science? But like, I could have gone that way. Like it, it, you're not, you're not sort of like, oh, well, this isn't for me because I studied this one thing or because I, I went in this one direction. So this door is closed forever. Right. I would honestly say the most important character trait or whatever that you need to um, meaningfully participate in science is the enthusiasm for it. Like we, we Mm -hmm. want people who give a shit. (laughs) That's what science needs. We want people who have like the energy and the commitment to, to participating in, in these fields. And that's not to say that like, you can't take a break when you need a break, but like that raw enthusiasm for like, you know, share your curiosity and your interest about the world is one of the most crucial things that, that I think science really benefits from. Like we need champions, right? champions from all all over the world from every different background um and every different like life trajectory where does the funding come from for this research oh man jeez you're asking all the all the real complicated questions um <laughs> the funding well it depends on like who's currently in charge at the government level they can they can make decisions and determinations about how much funding goes to like supporting public museums or museums in general nonprofits in general So funding for a lot of the research that happens like at the Field Museum comes from organizations like the National Science Foundation or other federal science 
agencies. In the past, like the Environmental Protection Agency, the EPA would have funded some research. A lot of that funding has been cut or severely stripped back in the current presidential administration. You, there's other like smaller grant opportunities too for researchers. Some corporations will have like a philanthropic branch or arm of the work that they do that supports research. You get like private donors who can support it. So funding is sort of like a patchwork quilt coming from all different areas. But basically, researchers are looking to get funding wherever they possibly can. Um, during administrations, like government administrations that aren't supportive of science, that's where you see a lot of outrage. And that's where you see a lot of frustration coming from the scientific community because the opportunities that they have to apply for funding is limited or non-existent. And what are those ramifications going to be like long term that there's like years where these research institutes are underfunded? Well, I'm going to give another example about natural history collections because that's what I know best. But when we're studying the impacts of something like climate change, and I'm not talking about just like globally, I'm talking about like, if you want to know how climate change is impacting your state, you need to have some sort of baseline for knowing where that change is happening and when. So for instance, the Field Museum collects migratory birds that die from flying into buildings in downtown Chicago. We get like 7,000 birds every single year that die just from window collisions. And those birds are really... That's so sad. Those poor birds. That's really sad. Yeah, it's a lot of birds. I mean, there are hundreds of thousands, if not millions of birds that die every year just from smacking into windows. Um, And, you know, not to let a dead bird go to waste, uh, we have volunteers and we partner with a group called the Chicago Bird uh, Collision Monitors. And they send out volunteers like in the spring and in the fall during peak migration. And these volunteers walk around like the perimeter of the outside of these buildings and they pick up all the dead birds that have died. And we we take them back to the museum. And these birds provide a really, really important baseline for helping ornithologists, like people who study birds, understand the migratory patterns of those species. For instance, we've been able to see like in some instances, birds or certain species are migrating earlier in the year because it's warming up faster or we're getting we're getting birds with like a lower body weight because they haven't been able to beef up as much because their food source, the primary food source isn't available because while it might be warmer out, the plants aren't emerging at the right time to support like the birds. Without funding, without research into understanding the more intricate patterns of our natural world, you lose out on building up that baseline. And so you have gaps in that knowledge. And that might seem a little inconsequential from one season to the next. But I'll give you an example of somebody who works in our fish division at the Field Museum. This person um, goes down to Central America uh, like six or seven times a year, and they collect fish from different countries in Central America, from El Salvador to Mexico. And they try to understand how pollution is impacting the native fish species that are living in these countries. But nobody was doing this research for almost 100 years. And so they don't have really a baseline to go back to in many instances. You don't know how pollution is impacting a group of fish in, in Guatemala if, you, if nobody else was doing research there for the last 60 years or whatever. And so right. funding for research can really help us better understand these these natural patterns and form baselines on which like so many other things are based on. So you can't put a wildlife protection order in place if you don't know anything about the wildlife in that area. And if you don't have like a good baseline of how things have changed in the past, it can be really hard to get support for that sort of thing. That was an excellent answer. I know. You're <laughs> like, these are tough questions. And I'm like, yeah, but, but you're it, it answering sounded like them. you had a prepared speech. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> well, thanks. I do spend my every day trying to get people to, again, give a crap. So <laughs> <laughs> I spend every day trying to get people to give a crap about hypothetical. Yay. Ooh, you ready Wait, to play? Do you like to play a game show? Yes. Okay, great. So um, in case you don't know, Hypotheticals is a game show that I created where you and Gabby are the contestants. I'm going to ask you a series of hypothetical situations. You can ask as many questions as you want, and uh, then you tell me what you would do. And I just decide if I like your answer. Okay. <laughs> so the opposite of science. <laughs> after connecting with someone online, you develop a deep, intense, intimate relationship. Only after corresponding for over a year do they agree to FaceTime. 
Turns out you have fallen in love with Bigfoot, who definitely pretended to be human. Would you stay with this liar? Oh, man. My answer to this question may have been different, but I've recently finished watching The Circle on Netflix. Have you seen this <laughs> show? I have not. It's amazing. It's like all these like people who have social media presences, and some of them are catfish and some of them aren't. And they end up in these wacky situations where some catfish are catfishing one another. Anyway, would I would I stay with this liar? I think so. I mean, like, it's the whole love is blind thing. I, I fell in love with Bigfoot based on their charming personality and, like, what I'm assuming to be deep empathy. And, uh, and <laughs> are they eight feet tall and have terrible body odor? Maybe. But what is love anyway? No, yes, know? they do. To yeah. clarify, they absolutely do. Yeah. Abs- they smell Where- like a garbage dump. <laughs> Where does Bigfoot live? In the mountains. So am I supposed to join him in the mountains or is he going to come live with me in Los Angeles? You have to make that kind of that game time call. You kind of have to talk about that. Why was he concealing himself? (laughs) What? You think day one he tells you he's Bigfoot? You're going to give him a real chance? Well, so people don't think he's real. So if he I mean, would that blow up his whole sort of like mysterious thing to like be in a relationship, especially with someone with a huge online presence? Uh, yeah, I mean, he if you if he moved to Los Angeles, he would be coming out as Bigfoot as being real. Are there other Bigfoots or is he the only one? He's the only one. OK, I would stay <laughs> <laughs> because of the fame potential. Yes, I knew it. Love isn't real to Gabby. It's all just a currency. Yeah. What can I get from this? Yeah. <laughs> Strangely enough, you both picked stay with Bigfoot. <laughs> what does that mean? Uh, I think it means that, well, for Emily, love is real. And for Gabby, uh, she'll move on to the next, whoever has the next biggest following. Amazing. And Bigfoot, <laughs> does Bigfoot like want to make like a YouTube channel? No. Well, what? <laughs> but if he comes to LA, if he comes to LA, what job is he going to have? He has to take ads. He has to do SpawnCon. No, he's going to get into construction. Uh, well, okay, fine. <laughs> Okay, our next game. Are you a terrible parent? Your child has no interest in using their brain and wastes the days away watching YouTube videos, not scientific ones. So after months of planning, you lock your child in an escape room so they will have to think in order to get out. They don't figure it out for 15 hours, but when they finally escape, they realize they are smart and shouldn't waste their brain. Are you a terrible parent? You have to clean up their poop and pee after. (laughs) Oh, man. Uh, See, I don't have kids and I don't have really a desire to have children. So I feel like locking them up in a room for 15 hours is something that like, I don't know, I could prevent myself from doing even on a good day. (laughs) But uh, I would, I, I mean, that's, that's not a great parental move. But I don't know what I don't know how to answer this one without like, alerting child protection services. I mean, oh, te- yeah. Technically, they could have gotten out after an hour. They just weren't really, you know, they weren't. Oh, really well, then attention. it's on them. Yeah. I mean, should have tried harder. Yeah, it should have been an hour escape room. They just were lazy. Oh, well, then that, that yeah, that makes the difference. I would absolutely just, yeah, go for it. That kid needs to, <laughs> to flex their critical thinking skills a little bit more. Good on them for co- coming out a stronger and more self-aware person. Covered in their own feces. <laughs> <laughs> What what job do they have later in life? They become a scientist. Okay. I think you're a good parent. Yeah, they don't speak to you, though. Oh, wait, what? We're estranged? Yeah, you're, in this, you're estranged, so you don't even know what kind of scientist. Ugh, that's tough. What, well, I mean, do they, like, make amazing contributions? Like, do they, like, fix climate change and stuff? You're not sure. They've blocked you on everything. <sighs> and they've changed their name. Oh, wow. Well, I guess you're still a good parent because <laughs> they... They, I'm sure they have their own happy life without me. Great. Again, answers I did not expect, but. (laughs) Okay, our final game. Are they an alien or just rude? While on an archaeological dig, the caterer you hired points 300 feet to the left of where you are digging and says, it's over there, you idiots. After failing to find anything at your original spot, you dig where they pointed and find a random dead body from seven years ago. Are they an alien or just rude? Oh, my God. Are they a serial killer? (laughs) No. How did they know? Well, how do you think they know? 
Also, Emily? to be clear, that's not what you were looking for on your archaeological dig. Yeah, I would be curious to know, like, where did where did we contract this caterer from? Because if they're like a local or an indigenous person from this area, then shame on me for not consulting with them to get more of their like local knowledge in the first place. Like, who am I? It's colonial white scientists coming in and trying to stake discoveries in an area I really know nothing about because I didn't do due diligence to consult with the locals. Like that's on me. They work for Subway. Oh, then, then I would, I'd be more inclined to think they are an alien or a serial killer. Wow. That, that was a really well thought out answer. Okay. I think, I think they're an alien because maybe they have a power where they can know where dead bodies are they can like feel the the energy of like the person like the the energy of of a once living being or they have a heightened sense of smell or that yeah but in this case they just killed that person seven years ago (laughs) why did they want us to find out because people like to be found out they you know they can't live with the guilt or they want the fame they're like everyone needs to know what i did like writing into the newspaper and stuff wow why yeah. did he kill him? Um, because uh, it was his mom who had locked him in an escape room. Oh, <laughs> no. Thank you so much for joining us, Emily. Where can people find more of your work? Uh, you can follow us on YouTube. It's youtube.com slash thebrainscoop. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm at E-H-M-E-E. That's Emmy. And you can check out my PBS series coming up uh, this summer called Prehistoric Road Trip on a PBS station near you. Amazing. Thank you so much. I feel so much more informed than just 30 (laughs) minutes ago. (laughs) Yay. Stick around after the break because we're going to talk about childhood moments that shaped us. Oh, yeah, baby. Welcome back to Just Between Us. It's time for Topics. X, 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 X. Baby. Baby. Uh, So this week, just going retro, going a little vintage. (sighs) Childhood moments that shaked us. Okay. I don't even know where to start. Um, Pick one. Uh, I don't know. I, I will say you and I similarly have blocked out a lot of stuff. I think like, I mean, it's not like in terms of childhood, I've been thinking about this a lot because I was talking about it with my partner, but I, in middle school that I was like bullied. Did I, have I told this story before about the letter? Uh, no, I was, I was bullied by this girl. I, I didn't understand why she was bullying me. And so I wrote her a letter being like, Hey, what's up with this? Like, are you like, am I doing something? Are you like going through something? Like what's, you know, I was like 12. I was like, what's, what's going on? Like, maybe we can work this out. Like what, why, you know, we don't have to be doing this. This seems extraneous. And, uh, I thought like, that's how you handle this. Cause I was born 45, I guess. And she, was it a handwritten letter or a typed letter? Uh, handwritten. Were there any stickers? No. And I gave it to her and she, uh, I was like, well, good conflict resolution or whatever. And then she like read it to like her lunch table and was like, what the fuck? And then cornered me in the bathroom and was like, I remember this sentence. She said, "Uh, why are you so weird? (laughs) And that has stuck with me so long. And now that I think about it, I was like, no, I was right. Like I was trying to go about this in a way that was like very mature and logical and But I had, I do think like that really impacted me. This person yelling, why are you so weird? Why am I so weird? But now I feel good about it. What conclusion did you come to? I'm just weird. I don't know. Like (laughs) now I was like precocious. I I was like a little, even when I was like nine, I was like a little adult. You know, maybe my, maybe I was parentalized young, which I talk about a lot. But uh, now I've come to a thing where I'm like, instead of being ashamed of it, I'm like, yes, why am I so weird? Well, here we are. Like, and it's actually like benefited me to be weird. So f- screw you. Yeah. Lady. What is she even doing now? 
I looked her up and she's working in cancer research, which is really hard for Damn me to it. deal with. Oh, man. Isn't that weird? Like someone who was like such a wretched bitch to you and like such a bad person for like years and years and years. And then you look them up and they're working in like a really wonderful field. Well, that's wonderful. People can change. <laughs> yeah. I mean, she might still be a bitch who's solving cancer. That is I don't true. Know. People are complex. And that's a lesson <laughs> I had to learn as well. That shapes me too. People are complex. One of the big moments that shaped me was when I was in kindergarten and someone called me a werewolf because I had such hairy arms. Mm-hmm. And so to this day, I shave my arms. But the big change is now I shave my arms for me. Hey, because you want to. <laughs> <sighs> yeah. I mean, it's hard to unpack sometimes, like if you're still doing stuff for you or if you're doing stuff because like someone said something to you when you were like five, you know? Yeah. My mom, like one time, I mean, it's weird what sticks with you too. You can forget whole swaths of time or people. But then like my mom one time was like, I was talking to her about something and she was like, you should tweeze your eyebrows. And now that I'll, I hear that on a loop. And I'm sure she mm-hmm. like didn't mean to like fuck me up. But like, here we are right. where I'm like, I got to make sure my eyebrows are perfect. And I'm sure she's, she hears that and is like, I'm so sorry. If I had known <laughs> that that was going to be what stuck with you forever, I wouldn't have said it. But you know. That's what's hard about being a mom. I remember um, this girl who was pretty mean to me. I was in this like an elementary school. I had like two friends and like one was nice and one was mean. You know, that Mm -hmm. that horrible power dynamic of three friends. Sure. And the mean one like convinced me to like try to jump to the third monkey bar, (gasps) which was a huge jump. And I went for it and then I promptly broke my wrist. (gasps) And so I had to like go home and you know get a cast on my wrist and everything and then when I came back to school the next day they had like learned this choreographed dance to I get knocked down oh my god without you and without me yeah (gasps) (laughs) so that was like very traumatizing I have such an aversion to being left out like such an aversion I when I was in college I I went to a movie with a bunch of friends and I fell asleep during the movie and when I woke up the movie was over and all of them had left just left me there which is like (gasps) they were drunk or high or on coke or something who knows but so I woke up and then I I went and found them and I screamed at them like I was like obviously I should have been mad but I was like beyond the pale like seeing red rage mad and then I had to think about like why was I so like triggered to the max by this and I think it was because like when I was a little kid I wouldn't get invited to things or people would just forget about me or like I would I felt very deeply forgotten about a lot like this one girl and I told her about this because I I found her and she's a dominatrix in New York everyone made strong choices from your past I know <laughs> they cancer they, researcher dominatrix. dominatrix I wrote about her in my journal which is incredibly gay but I like carpooled with her like we knew each other and she made a list of everyone in our grade and like deemed them if they were like popular cool kids or like cool outsiders. It wasn't like a compliment to be on the popular side in her mind, but the popular kids took it as such. And then she made a list of people in the middle who were just neutral and I was in neutral and I was like, I was like neutral. I would rather be in the losers or the popular. Like I would rather have an identity like neutral (laughs) And so, like, I think that informs a lot of my personality where, one, I don't want to be forgotten about. And two, like, I'm like, to this day, I'm like, I don't care what your interaction with me is. It's good or bad, but it better not be fucking neutral. You better remember it. I I mean, that was the worst possible thing someone could have put me on in terms of that list. I remember, I think I've talked about this, where I tried to prank my mom by pretending I drowned in a bathtub. Yes. I remember this. And then she like lost her mind because of course, why wouldn't she? So that really taught me that those are bad pranks. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that really, that really shaped what types of pranks I'm willing to do. Yeah. Maybe that taught you that death is too serious. Yeah. (sighs) I mean, I stopped believing in God because my grandmother passed away when I was 14. So that's pretty shaping. Yeah. I mean, there's tons. I mean, I grew up in an alcoholic home. Like I could get into like tons of fucked up shit that I'm sure made me who I am today. This is really stupid. But one time my parents were like, "Okay, like close your eyes and see if you can tell where we're driving to (gasps) just for fun. Okay. And um, I did. And then we like took these back roads where there are these like um, speed bumps. And so I actually ended up knowing where we were. And that I think like really gave me a lot of self-confidence in my intelligence. (gasps) 
That's cool. Like, I think all the time about how I figured out where we were going. That's really cool and useful if you're kidnapped. Exactly. I think I'm a writer because when I was in second grade, I wrote a a story and my teacher submitted it to the Broward County Fair for like judging. And I won a blue ribbon. And so we got my whole family went to the Broward County Fair to see my my story hung up with the blue ribbon. And I was like, this is my story. And everyone was like, oh, my God, that's amazing. I was like in second grade. Oh, my God, like, that's so wonderful. And then we like hung it up in my house with the blue ribbon and everything. And I was like, I got to chase this feeling for the rest of my life. Like, this is (laughs) everyone's paying attention to me. Everyone's like so happy. Like my whole family is together at the fair and no one's fighting. Like, this is amazing. Like, this will cure. Like, being a successful writer will fix everything. And have you found that to be true? No, but... (laughs) I am chasing the high. And that's because, and to be honest, like you want to talk about the importance of teachers. That's because of the, my teacher, Mrs. Brookhuizen, who like encouraged me to be a writer and encouraged me to like, she submitted it. Like, you know, like that's the importance of like a second grade teacher who like gave me my career basically. Wow. My mom is like still in touch with her, I think. (laughs) Well, that's like, I went to a summer program and I was 15 and took like this writing class. And my teacher was like, you know, you could just be a writer. Yeah. Instead of like a lawyer or something else. And I was like, you're right. I could be a writer. And then I've wanted to be a writer ever since. It's so important. Like teachers really shape you. Like I had a teacher who was like really mean and she was a math teacher. So for the rest of my life, I was like, math sucks. But like if I had had a really nice math teacher, who knows what would have happened? Like if you're a teacher, you really have a lot of power over kids' lives. I know. It's terrifying. And a lot of times teachers gave me a lot of attention. Like I was very like precocious and and like a a kid who read and a kid who like, you know, I had encyclopedias that I would read and stuff. And so because I was like really escaping my household and I had a lot of encouragement from teachers, like definitely like teachers were like, you're smart, like you're smart and you're a good writer. And that like was so important. When I was in the fourth grade, I told my mom that my teacher never called on me. And so my mom like asked the teacher why she never called on me. And the teacher was like, well, because I know she knows the answer. Yes, I had that same thing. Yeah. So then I had to change schools. (laughs) Whoa. Yeah, I had that same. Oh, another thing that really shaped me, I don't know if I've mentioned this, is uh, one time in kindergarten, I got a splinter. And my best friend, Erin, whose name I didn't know for most of kindergarten, even though she was my best friend, She was like, I wish I'd gotten that splinter instead of you. And you were like, that's friendship. Yeah, I was like, wow, that's the nicest thing anyone's ever said to me. And then I understood what it meant to be like loved and cared for. Oh, that is so nice. (laughs) It's really interesting because all that I'm learning about in school is like how much your childhood shapes you. Mm -hmm. And but I also think that like it is possible to work through stuff. Yeah. Like I had a like. No part of me wants to return to my childhood at all. And like if I dig through, there's like a lot of pain there and stuff. But like I don't I no longer feel affected by it. Like I no longer have low self-confidence. I no longer feel like people hate me or that my personality is weird or sucks Mm -hmm. or like, you know, like I I think that if you put in the work, you can work through it. But if you are a parent like being hyper aware of like this time in your kid's life. Yeah. And that like you can't protect them from everything, but you can like provide a lot of like protective factors. Yeah. To like make up for the bad stuff. And be someone that they can talk to. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I also like I had I there was stuff that I had to like reclaim. Like I remember as a little kid, like or not as a little kid, but like elementary school or middle school or whatever, I was like I'm I'm going to like kiss my boyfriend on the cheek. Like I want I was like the person making the making the romance moves. Like I was mm-hmm. like you're my boyfriend or like I I like went to a movie with this with like a boyfriend when I was like 12 and I like kissed him on the mouth or whatever. And like all these things were like I was like moving things forward and and a lot of times like girls were slut shamey and even like the guy in the part in the that I was kissing was slut shamey. And like that really like for a long time fucked with me where I was like, I guess I'm slutty. I don't know. Like I was like really sad about it. And now I'm like, whatever. Like (laughs) that's a superpower. Like fuck all y'all. Like I had like less Puritan views on sex and dating than like the people around me. And that made me feel like really weird 
But I'm like, mm-hmm. no, you were just like queer and like you were just like <laughs> you were just like, uh, uh, you know, up to different stuff or I don't know. I because I, I was embarrassed. I never it never occurred to me that other people were like kissing's like eh, like you did that like yeah like it never really occurred to me until other people made fun of me which is also a huge thing right like other other people make fun of you and then you're like oh is this a thing well i just think that like nothing would upset me more than finding out that my kid was making fun of someone else exactly oh like if my kid bullies or is mean (gasps) or like forget it like you can sneak out of the house and like go party fine but like if you're fucking mean to somebody i'll kill you yeah i i would hope that i would be like do not judge people or i don't know because it's hard like you get you internalize so much stuff like i internalize like being made fun of for like not having like tiffany bracelets or like louis vuitton purses i like internalized like people being like i can't believe you let someone touch your boob like i internalized like so much stuff that now i'm like I, I've I've pushed it to the forefront, you know. I make I make yeah. a show called Bad with Money. Go fuck yourselves. I didn't have a Louis Vuitton purse. I like you know <laughs> do this show or talk about sexuality all the time. Like go fuck yourself with your movie theater kiss making fun of at school, whatever. I don't know. I remember so specifically when I got my braces off and I realized that my face was still the same. Oh, I was like so pissed. I thought when I got my braces off, I was going to be so beautiful and I looked the same. And I was like, I just sat in my car and cried. <gasps> really? Yeah. Oh, but now I like my face. To be fair, I, I've since had a nose job, but I, I think I would have liked it either way. <laughs> I'm sure you have this too with your sister. Like growing up with my sister, she's she's blonde. She has blue eyes. She's um, she was like a, a cool girl. And there was this thing where she and I have talked about this, where people always said to us, like to her in front of me, they'd be like, you're so beautiful. And then to me in front of her, they'd be like, oh, you're so smart. You do so well in school. And so for a long time, Cheyenne, like, Cheyenne like barely graduated high school because she never cared. Yeah. She never was like she never was praised for it. So like fuck that. And like for me, a lo- for a long time, I was just like, I don't care about looks. I'm a feminist. I care, which is like so second wave feminism. But I was like, I don't care about look. Like I'm a I'm a intellectual. Like people who care about looks are stupid, and that's not true. And then Cheyenne was like, Oh, I'm not an idiot. Like it just like, yeah. but bo- but because when we were little, people would always be like oh my God, you're so beautiful to her and like never said it to me. I was like, okay, I guess I'm uggo. (laughs) I remember like having a pool party for like my birthday, I think when I was like in seventh grade maybe. And my sister was there and she's five years older. So like she's 17 and we're like 12 and all the guys were like going gaga Mm -hmm. over her. And I wanted to be like, she's 17. She doesn't like you. Yeah. But like always feeling inferior and that I like wasn't attractive compared to my sister. Totally. Someone said to me one time, oh, your sister is you but hot. Oof. And now guess what? My sister is still hotter than me. Me too. (laughs) (laughs) We just not. But what's changed is our attitudes. That's very true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what I was going to say. You know, still better looking, but uh, I I feel okay about it. (laughs) Exactly. Tamika, do you want to share a moment that shaped you from childhood? So I I was thinking about this uh, recently. Something I think really shaped me was that we really couldn't go outside very often when I was little. Because we lived in uh, like a dangerous neighborhood. There were shootings and, you know, basically we shouldn't be out outside of the, the view of adults. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. like every now and again, we could go out into the front yard, though, and there was like this big tree in our front yard. And so to this day, I kind of still like find peace being around trees and sort of even though I didn't get around nature very often when I was little, I felt, I felt more at peace when I was around trees and nature. And then I still kind of have this like impulse to travel or be somewhere else, I think, because I was like constantly having to be in a yard or indoors or something like that. So quarantine must not be fun for you. (laughs) It's really not. (laughs) Well, she could go outside and see a tree. Yeah. Right. still allowed to hug trees. Yeah. And like suburban areas. Yeah, for sure. There's, there's at least a, a lot of that in California. So that's good. But, um, no, I had a question for you guys. Mm. If, if you could go back and change one thing from your childhood, would you? And what do you think it would be? My impulse is to say to make my dad not a an alcoholic and drug addict. But I don't know if that made me into who I am or I'm not sure. Because like, right, that's the thing that you would be like, oh, let me go back and like not have gone through that. But but like, is that 
something that I went through so that I could like share that with people and like make people feel better or like be more empathetic. I don't know. It's tough. I think it's too it's too precarious to remove something or change something because yeah. who knows what could happen. Then it's like the butterfly effect. You don't know what, what else would happen. Right. Yes. Yeah. I also think like changing one thing about your past, like you could make yourself into a different person. And I think fortunately the three of us generally like who we are now. <laughs> so also like giving up the hard work we put in to be like who we are now, you know, that would be tough because you feel like you fought to be here. <laughs> right. Um, and so any sort of change could derail that, I guess. I changed my answer. I have something. What? Ooh. I wouldn't. I would have had my dad not make us give away our dog. Oh my god! Uh, because I really don't think that that helped me. It's <laughs> <laughs> so sad. It's like really sad and fucked up. Yeah, like I would have. I would have kept the dog, and like I think that would have just been nice. But then I would have had to go through a dog dying. So I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. I-, I was thinking about like my grandmother who passed away when I was fourteen. Like, would I? want her to be alive and like uh, yes I definitely would have but also like during this pandemic where so many people's grandparents are at risk I'm sort of like every day I'm like I'm so glad she didn't see Trump get elected like there's like so many things that I'm like you know what it wasn't it wasn't that many better years after you left us like you didn't miss much <laughs> that's not true wow. I mean it's like not it's like, hasn't been, I'm like, oh my God, you know, wow, so many cool things. I'm like, has it? But I, yeah, but she would have had more years with of, me. Of yes, you grow that's up. true. That's true. I think maybe it's just like being in quarantine, but I'm like, how good has it been, really? <laughs> I would make maybe my, my mom's mom not have had Parkinson's disease. Yeah. And then not have had her die as young. Yeah. Because I think that that was so hard for my mom. Yeah. I'm mm. I'm being yeah. darkly funny about it, but I don't mean it. <laughs> I can see your face on Zoom and it seems like you mean it. <laughs> what do we rate this episode? I rate it 10 out of 10 uh, penis bones. Ah, very good. Yes. <laughs> I rate it 3 out of 3. Band-Aids for our childhood trauma. (laughs) Thank you so much, Emily Grassley, for being our guest. Just Between Us is hosted by me, Allison Raskin. And me, Gabby Dunn. Our engineer is Brendan Burns. He also composed our killer theme music. Our producer is Tamika Weatherspoon, and our supervising producer is Josephine Martirana. Our executive producer is Chris Bannon. Just Between Us is a production of Stitcher. Uh, Yeah, I wish I had kept that dog. Stitcher.